This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by the legendary Simon Belanger. Happy Canada Day to all. This comes out on Monday, July 3rd, right, Simone? Third? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So that is the Monday holiday. And uh, so Saturday was Canada Day. So happy Canada Day to all. This is the Canadian Investor Podcast. And we are doing a Canada Day special. We're playing a game of Would You Rather. There is a brand new game and it's going to be a hit. I already know. So this here's how the game works. I'm going to list two tickers for you, Simone. And at today's valuation, you're going to tell me what you would rather buy. You're going to answer first, and then I will answer. You have not seen these ahead of time, uh, and I haven't really decided what I'd rather own either. So it's going to be off the cuff. This is certainly this is certainly not investment advice. <laughs> so should I be looking at their valuation as you say the names or just on top of my head? I started writing them out. Okay. And then, as you can tell, as you can tell, I, st- I stopped. Okay. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe take a look, maybe pull up Strato, yeah. you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, look, this is certainly not investment advice. We may know the ins and outs of some of these businesses, and much less to very little to none about another business. So, given that, let's fire it up. Some of these are very similar businesses. Some of them are completely different. But that's what makes it fun. And, uh, you know, some are industry, some are industry agnostic. All right, you with me? You got the rules? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and feel free, you know, take your time. You don't have to rapid fire. You th- give us your thoughts. See what you're seeing in the numbers. Uh, it's That's kind of the whole point is that it's not like you've studied this and you looked through this. It's seeing how you and I think about this together. All right, so... First one, Netflix or Disney? What would you rather? Today, Netflix trades out of 25 times. I'll give you a forward EV to EBITDA. And Disney trades out of 12 and a half forward enterprise value to EBITDA. So exactly double the multiple on Netflix. What would you rather? Um, Yeah, I mean... I'm a bit torn here. I'd probably go with Disney just because they have a wider range of assets. So they also have like the theme parks that that do quite well and can actually support the business when the streaming side and the content side is not performing as well. They can also repurpose some of the content to the theme parks, what they've done historically. So I would probably go Disney, but the one concern, I don't have them in front of me, but I'm trying to pull it up. I know they do have a lot of debt and that would be a big concern with Disney is that um, it could really impact their earnings going forward depending on what rate they refinance that debt. So that's that's my biggest concern. I don't think Netflix has as much debt on the balance sheet, but um, if I had to choose, you know, on the spot, I would go, I think, Disney. Okay, I will take the counter uh, side of the coin. I will pick Netflix We've seen really good results already out of the ad-supported business and really good results already out of the password sharing crackdown. Have you got hit with that yet? I got hit with the... Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got we're hit now, with that. We're paying now for uh, basically the um, the account of uh, both our, our parents. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you got the short end of the stick. Okay, got yeah. it. So, now you're the guy paying for everyone's Netflix. Dude, why was the bear case that password sharing would lower subs like people would cancel because and i'm like the person who's already paying is not gonna stop paying just because you know their brother or uncle can't use it anymore like that never made any sense to me so i think the biggest risk was that you'd have people that were not using the ad supported tier and were gonna downgrade and then potentially lower revenues based on that but um i haven't seen the figures recently i think it's performing pretty well even on an economics basis so yeah all right uh let's do the i'll say fast service industry the qsr industry quick service industry 
Starbucks or McDonald's okay. today? Um, so what are we looking at uh, for valuations? Should I just tell you the market caps? Would that help a little bit? Yeah, let's do market cap and then, yeah, because it'll be, I think, a really <laughs> long yeah, segment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Def- we have to look I definitely want to do the ETF segment too we have coming up because I think that'll be a fun one too. So. Okay. All right. So Starbucks today trades at a, oh God, $113 billion, and McDonald's is, I'd probably double that at... uh I'll start prepping them too for the next one. And now my computer's frozen. That's just wonderful. That's just what you love to see. Oh, that's here. okay. Let, let me take it from here for that. 212, 212. 212. Okay. Yeah. So 118 and 212, huh? That's right. Okay. So, I mean, I think I would go McDonald's here. Uh, the main reason being is you're probably not going to see as much growth as Starbucks, because Starbucks, I think, is betting heavily on the Chinese market, so they've been expanding heavily over there. However, McDonald's is a great place, especially if you think that we're going to be entering a slowdown in the economy and a recession. I think it's the Dollarama food play where you know people still need to eat, and even yeah. though McDonald's may increase their prices slightly, they're still going to be better value than most options out there. And uh, they've historically done pretty well, even in downturns. So I'm going to go with McDonald's for that reason. I was checking at the valuations, and they're almost identical for both of them. So oh, yeah. P around okay. 30 and price of free cash flow around like high 30s, low 40s. Interesting. Okay. I I think we're in agreement. I think we're in agreement. I. I know that the Starbucks playbook of them opening an egregious amount of stores in China right now, I, th- I think it's probably going to work. But McDonald's, I was going to say, has such good pricing power, but they have both unbelievable. Like Starbucks is like the the icon of pricing power. This one, I think I'm pretty torn. I, I honestly, you, you flip a coin and you told me it's one of them that I had to own. I, I would say, I would say, sure. If I had 10 seconds to decide, I would go with the golden arches. All right, Shopify. I wanted to pick two Canadian tech names and the, the biggest. So Shopify at 108 billion CAD versus Constellation Software at 56. I don't even have to answer this one, but you're going to answer it. Yeah, so I own Shopify. I mean, if I had to pick, I think I would probably... I, I think I would probably go Constellation just because. Wow, look at uh, that. <laughs> yeah, just because I think Shopify's valuation has gone um, a little bit ahead of itself once more. So I do yeah. own it. I don't intend on selling it, but I think Constellation, uh, more reasonable valuation, not as It's also high not a cheap stock, by the yeah. way. <laughs> no, I know. I'm looking at the price. So price to free cash flow of 31 and then yeah. uh, I guess Shopify... Uh, no, no data there, but <laughs> uh, yeah, I, guess, I think you need to have free cash yeah, flow. Free for that cash flow, exactly. Um, yeah, so I think I would go Constellation just for the overall kind of mix of growth, but also kind of better diversification slash safety around it. So that's probably the yeah, and more low key from for investors in general. If you ask yeah. American investor if they know Shopify or Constellation, uh, probably nine out of ten will say that uh, they know Shopify, and maybe one out of ten will say that they know Constellation. Yep, very true. Even at fifty six billion in market cap, it uh, trades very under the radar, only on the TSX. Well, you know what my answer is yeah, because fifty six percent of my portfolio is in the hands of beautiful Mark Leonard and the Constellation Empire. All right, CN Rail and CP Rail. CN is one hundred and six billion in market cap. CP closing that gap, ninety eight billion in market cap. So very, very similar. Obviously, very, very similar businesses. I'd say now at a bit of a different trajectory, um, given what's happened with KC Southern. Yeah, definitely. So CN Rail is definitely uh, trading significantly cheaper than CP. Than CP. Um, So I think, I mean, I own Canadian National Rail, and that would probably be my play. Obviously, it's nice that uh, uh, CP did the acquisition for Kansas City Southern, got approved by regulators with some little caveats, but overall, um, nothing too major here. 
But I just think, you know, especially if the economy takes a little bit of a downturn, I like the fact that uh, Canadian National Rail can has tons of free cash flow and they can decide whether they want to return that to shareholders paying down debt. Um, CP, on the other end, took on a lot of debt to acquire Kansas City Southern. So that I think that's a bit of a risk. Definitely, there is more growth there. But um, with the current macroeconomic environment, I think I would head towards the safer play a uh, better balance sheet versus the more potential growth play. Fair enough. I, I think that the CP's set up to do extremely well. The multiple difference I don't think is quite justified. But given that, given I'm uh, my age and risk tolerance and how safe these businesses are in general, I like the new, uh, the new coverage that CP has today. All right. Airbnb and booking holdings. Airbnb is an 82 billion in market cap business. Booking holdings is a hundred billion. For those less familiar with booking holdings, they have booking.com, uh, kayak. What's another big, big, oh, is it like hotels.com? A bunch of different aggregators for the travel business, both on the accommodation side and rental car side, as well as flight aggregation. So they basically have assets that'll cover your entire trip if you want a, a, a big competitor to Expedia. Yeah, that's uh, Airbnb hands down. Naughty, it's a no-brainer for me, mainly because if there is a company out of the two that will be disrupted by AI, it's going to be Booking Holdings. Because ChatGPT, for example, you can always already use it and uh, to help you kind of plan trips. And uh, you can even have it so you can book the different things directly and bypass a booking holdings, for example. Whereas Airbnb, I mean, it could be disrupted a little bit. But if you're thinking about people that don't have tons of vacation property, maybe just one property that they're putting there. I mean, they're just putting it there. They're not putting it on several other sites. They don't have a site of their own. Uh, whereas, you know, an Expedia or booking holdings in this situation, usually they're just offering things. Things that you could go straight to the provider to get anyways. And that's where I think the, the chat GPT disruption uh, could really come into. So I would actually, personally, I would like not touch with a 10-foot bull uh, booking holdings or an Expedia right now. Yeah, I think that there's some risk to the aggregators. Airbnb for me is, is the clear pick, just given the optionality. Um, and in the management team, I think Brian Chesky is probably one of the best founder-led CEOs today in all of public markets. I think he's fantastic. I think he's going to drive this business to a lot bigger than it already is today. I, 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 I actually think Booking's an incredible business, but given all those things I've said, it's going to the Airbnb. Also, probably one of the strongest brands in the world right now. All right, I haven't been writing my data here. I got to put it in. S&P Global versus Moody's Corporation, the two credit rating agencies' businesses. Their business today, both of them, is about 50% credit rating agency and 50% SaaS tools to help investors manage risk with equities, credit, um, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at both and... It looks like Moody's is definitely uh, actually S and P is trading at a little better valuation than it's Moody's. It's on a tasty drawdown right now. Yeah, so it's quite similar for both, but um, in terms of at least revenue growth, S and P has done a bit better recently, and it's trading. I mean, similar price to earnings, but price to fee cash flow slightly less than Moody's. So I probably go just based on that with S and P Global. That would be more of a valuation thing for me, just because they're very similar businesses, and at that point, I think that's where valuation comes in. Yeah. I own them both equal weighted. And I'll tell you what, I am in the process of moving the entire allocation to just SPGI. I think the price is right today. It's on a nice little drawdown. It's one of the best businesses on planet Earth. The, the indices business, you know, the S&P 500 is made by them. And I am in the analytics business here and Capital IQ has some of the best, most robust APIs. 
I just gave them a lot of money, Simone. <laughs> I just, I need to hedge my bets and own some of the stock here. Um, I think that they are really well positioned here. Moody's as well on the the credit rating agencies, but they both have that in this like pseudo duopoly. I think the rest of the assets now that they've also acquired Info Market, uh, IHS Market with ticker Info. Uh, they're really, really well positioned here. All right, two Canadian names, two of the boomer stocks, Bell versus Suncor. Oh, wow, huh? Yeah, Bell, completely different uh, businesses they're, too. They're completely different industries, but I see them in the exact same portfolio side by side. Yeah, what's funny too is we didn't go over that in, our, in the latest earnings and news, but uh, Suncor got hacked, right? So um, they got hacked, I think it was yesterday or today, where they're, um, you couldn't even use at the Petro-Canada station. People couldn't use cards. Uh, they had to pay cash. Oh, my God. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not kidding. Uh, we I didn't, didn't even get... hear about this. Oh, yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty funny that you picked that one. Um, I would, pr- I don't know. This is a hard one. I think I would go, even despite that Suncor, um, just because I think oil. I mean, I've been adding quite a bit to Canadian natural resources. I haven't, you know, started a position in Suncor, but I do think that right now oil prices are a bit depressed compared to uh, what. They could potentially be in more the medium to long term. A lot of people are predicting a global recession coming up, which is putting pressure on the oil prices. And even though Suncor has had some safety and management issues in the last uh, little while, I think they're pretty well positioned overall going forward. Whereas a Bell, I mean, obviously it's part of the big telecoms in Canada, but um, telecoms just have to invest heavily in their infrastructure. Not that Suncor doesn't, it's also capital intensive, but I just see more upside personally in Suncor than a Bell. I do too, uh, but I'm going to take that. I mean, they're both, you're, you're getting paid to, to hold the both of yeah. these things. They both yield six plus percent. Uh, you know, you're not hoping on a lot of growth for either of them, but given that Bell is just so stable, um, you know, the, their assets, the, it's a telco. Can I pick the bailout answer of neither and run? Uh, but if no. I had to pick, I'm, I'm picking Bell. <laughs> it's your segment, right. so you can't cop do, out. Do more, do more names. Restaurant Brands International or Dollarama? Oh, my God. I've been burned by Dollarama before. So I, I, I thought they would have issues raising prices in the pandemic, and they've done quite well. So uh, props to you kind of predicted that, and that kind of goes to my McDonald's over Starbucks, too. Um, I think there's uh yeah, I mean, it's a very hard, <laughs> I kind of hesitate because I think if restaurant brand internationals does things right, there could potentially be value in their brands, but I think it's, I don't know. I just have the feeling it's somewhat stagnant as a business. It's always the same thing every year is like one, one chain will could be kind of pulling it up. One year it'll be Popeyes, the other year it'll be Tim Hortons, and then it's rarely Burger King. But uh, it's still, <laughs> you know, that's kind of the reoccurring thing is like they never fire on all cylinders, all their brands. It seems like at the it's, same time, exactly. Yeah. It's always like right. one of them brings up the rest. So I'm gonna go with Dollarama. I know that's not trading cheaply, but uh, they've been resilient, and inflation as not had any impact on them if i remember correctly their margins are doing really well uh, they're able to pass on that price to consumers and consumers the reality is is they don't have really better option in terms of low cost so i'm gonna go low dollarama four dollars turns to five dollar items five dollar items turns to six dollar items will be you know people will be banging the drum oh there's no way they can do six dollar items and you'll hear me on the podcast. Yes, they will. And people will pay for them because it's still a better value proposition. Having said that, Restaurant Brands International, for those who are unfamiliar with the business as a hold co, you'll be very familiar with Tim Hortons, Popeyes, and Burger King, and also now Firehouse Subs. So those are their four brands. I don't, if you asked me this question 10 years ago, 
it's Dollarama. If you ask me this question now, Dollarama has hit a bit of a saturation point. They're still opening about 65, almost exactly stores per year, uh, which is fine. So there's still a lot of uh, room for growth, but that number is not scaling. This business is not increasing. They've opened exactly 65 stores in a row for almost (laughs) like eight years in a row. Um, they flex their pricing power. It's a wonderful business, but it's purely a bet on Canada that I don't want to make. I want, I like the optionality for RBI to continue to acquire a little bit more aggressively once they get that balance sheet a little bit more, uh, a little more under control to grow outside globally. I don't think the air, the Tim Hortons brand's going to grow, but the Popeyes brand has a lot of legs. And Burger King, despite what you think, it's everywhere in Europe and it's actually good in Europe because it's horrendous here. Uh, you heard it from here. Okay. Well, so one thing I'll add though for that is um, our popli- population growth is quite high, right? As everyone knows, good. we reached 40 million, I think a couple of days ago, whatever. Yep. So that's going to be definitely creating some growth opportunities for a Dollarama. So I think that is part of the potential growth because if you have new people coming in, you know, and sometimes they're living on budgets too, um, Dollarama in my mind is a clear winner from that. Yes, but you could argue that Tim Hortons is capturing that upside as well. This is true, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. The people want to know for this one, the two bubbliest, broiest trader stocks around, NVIDIA at $1 trillion in market cap or Tesla at $785 billion? Um, I think I'd go NVIDIA here uh, without hesitation, actually, because the competition is so strong in the EV space, although we saw Lordstown, I think, filing for bankruptcy today. Uh, but again, you, you're seeing the big builders, whether it's Volkswagen, Ford, GM, um, they're all Toyota, they're all investing heavily in EV. And at the end of the day, I think you're going to see, you know, Tesla will continue doing well, but you're just going to see more and more competition in this space. So I think it's putting a bit of a cap on the potential returns for Tesla. And then you have on, you know, the other end, NVIDIA, which is clearly in a league of its own, at least right now, in terms of AI GPUs that are being used. I think AMD is definitely has announced a few things recently. Clearly, the valuation is quite high. It's also high for Tesla, too. But I think NVIDIA has more of a stronghold in terms of what they do best. With one potential competitor, I don't think Intel will get as... Uh, bleep together uh, in time to be a competitor here and so I yeah I think I'm just kind of seeing it more as competition um, and just forgetting the valuation for a second and I think that's why NVIDIA I I'd pick them they have an edge in my view yeah that's fair enough I mean you kind of got to compare them business to business because you can't get there on valuation with any of them (laughs) like you can't you can't get there on price with either of these businesses personally I think I think Tesla's actually probably a little bit more reasonable, but NVIDIA has probably higher growth. Look, Tesla has done some really good things with uh, their infrastructure. They have that first mover advantage. They have spectacular margins for an auto business. Um, you got to give them a lot of credit. And, you know, you've seen Ford GM now hopping on the infrastructure that, that Tesla has built out. So that's a new revenue stream for the business. So, you know, kind of executing as you'd, as you'd hope a business this highly valued is. But as you mentioned, it's a car company. It is a car company. They have this a very interesting infrastructure business on the side, but that's not where the revenues or gross profit comes from. It comes from the cars. And I don't own car co- I don't own car companies unless maybe the most elite luxury businesses that are actually not car companies. For instance, Ferrari is not a car company. It is a luxury flex business where you buy them to status signal not to drive them. Uh, I would maybe consider owning Porsche as well, which spun out recently. But I'm not owning any other car companies. So for that reason, I am out and into the most bubbly stock of all time. All right, let's go into uh, Berkshire Hathaway versus LVMH, two conglomerates 
you have very humble Mr. Buffett versus the very flashy LVMH Bernard Arnold. I'm going to go with uh, Buffett here. Yeah, and just I it's just his way of making bets that are against the grain that uh for the most part will pan out. Obviously, he's not, you know, he's not without fault. He's made some bets that did not work out over time, but he's just really good at finding deals whether it's, you know, preferred equity, convertible debt sometimes, all different kind of deals as you know, he's as, you know, nice he's as he's, yeah, as nice as he seems He's done some really solid deals in the past, whether it was uh, thinking about the great financial crisis, like just some of the things he's able to do. Like he he looks like a very nice guy, but he's also, you know, a shark in terms of doing business deals and being able to do some highly profitable and high upside deals that also have, for the most part, a pretty high floor too, even if they don't pan out exactly as he sees. Typically, they're deals that even if it goes not as planned, they'll end up doing just fine. So I'm going to go with uh, with Buffett and the fact that you can just sit back and own the shares and basically, you know, you don't even have to look about it and worry about it. Yeah, that's right. I, I think that that's right. LVMH, you know, on, on paper, I'd love to own that portfolio of brands for sure. It's just true luxury, uh, terrific capital allocator. We're talking about two of the best capital allocators to ever do it here. I do like Berkshire a little bit better because of the price. LVMH is in a very expensive stock. It's it sells luxury goods at a luxury price uh, on the stock, and so I think you can probably map out some better IRRs with 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 Buffett and the and the Berkshire clan there. All right, Lockheed Martin, the defense contractor, versus Boeing. They both make planes, but one. <laughs> One gets you from point A to point B. One is uh, the most advanced piece of technology and an outright killing machine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, without... I'll just say I'm putting aside any social conscience that I have here with my ESG answer. out the window. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, not even ESG, but, you know, the, the military-industrial complex, which I've always had some issues with. Um, but I think, unfortunately, the reality of the world we live in, um, I would probably go with Lockheed Martin um, because Boeing also has had some pretty serious scandals if we're thinking about the 737 MAX uh, yeah. with the software that was in there, a couple of major inst- well, plane crashes, let's say say how it is, that happened and some quality control issues that they've had in the past like five, six years. Um they're obviously in a duopoly with Airbus, so they're not going anywhere. But I think their reputation has definitely been affected and damaged. It's not, you know, I think it's going to be a good business going forward. But I think the edge here goes to Airbus if you're thinking about the duopoly. Um, and for that reason, I think I would go, unfortunately, with the industrial military complex, which, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we have... Uh, we seem to have a knack to get into wars, and a company like Lockheed Martin benefits from that. And even if we don't get into wars, we need to make sure, if one happens, that we're prepared. Yeah. And how many F-35s did Canada just buy, like, six months ago? They bought, like, yeah, I looked that up. I, Canada ordered an egregious amount of F-35s. Canada... They had to replace the fleet, right? So, yeah, they used to have CF-18s that are, I think they've been basically looking to change them for close to 20 88. years. Yeah. Yeah, so they... 88 F-35s. I, were, I used to... 88, okay. So I used to work at the Canadian War Museum as a guide, and they were talking about like getting the contract out to replace them then, and that was in the mid-2000s. So wow. just to tell you how long it's been, because these things take time to build. Um, they're very expensive contracts, too. And obviously, military spending is not always popular. So it, it's taken time. And I know that those CF-18s are um, they're definitely towards the end of their life. Yeah. 
80, this was in uh, January. This was 88 F-35s order of $14.2 billion. So and how's that for how's yeah, that that's for probably price? And there's probably a maintenance contract in there too on top of that. Like I, I don't know if that's a full contract value, if it includes like a certain amount of years for maintenance. But usually that uh, – I'm not a military expert, but I'm pretty sure usually those contracts will include some – uh, maintenance built in, but then, you know, they may have to re-up that in the future. Anyways, if someone knows, let us know. It's not, uh, I, I haven't really studied, uh, uh military companies uh, <laughs> too much in the past. Yeah. The United States has a planned procurement of total 1,762 F-35As. Yeah. That would, <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> and we're like, yeah. oh, we got 88, baby. Let's go. Uh, no, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going with you here. I think Lockheed is, look, it's an, it's a, it's an impressive technology company is what it is. They, they build some of the most advanced hardware, software machines that humans have ever constructed. Um, what that's just flat out depend. I don't care what they do in terms of your opinion on that. They are one of the most impressive technology companies that we have uh, on planet earth and they're just so locked in. There's never been a president that spent less on defense than the previous one. And that, that trend is not going to change depending on who's sitting in the oval office. That trend is not going to change. All right, let's uh, go uh, different here. We'll do, we'll just do two more here, Simone, and then we'll go to the ETF thing. (laughs) Yeah. BlackRock or Intuit. We got financials giant versus software giant. BlackRock is 102 billion in market cap today. Intuit is 129. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, I don't have like I haven't pulled the metrics on this one. Um, I'm gonna wow, that's a that's a really good one. I really, I mean, they're both gonna be affected if there is a market downturn because chances are if there's a market downturn, asset value goes down, total asset. Um, asset under management so AUM for BlackRock will go down and then you can you know relate that to Intuit which of course if there's a downturn less smaller businesses and I guess the other thing that could affect Intuit is um, the CRA potentially coming up with an automatic filing system I think they were talking about that and I think the US may be talking about something like that too so would impact revenues for TurboTax I'm gonna go as I'm talking about that, I'm gonna. I was gonna see into it, and as I was talking, I'm gonna switch over to BlackRock. Fair enough. For me, Intuit is this is this business with an unbelievable asset in QuickBooks, and then their TurboTax and their Mint product. I don't love, and I think that Mailchimp is overcharging, and I see people in the software community s- switching off just. We switched off MailChimp just a, a few months ago because it was, they were trying to charge me like $2,000 a month to have my email s- service with MailChimp. <laughs> I switched to a better product that does the exact same thing for 300 a month. Yeah. And that's not even a cheap one. Like you can, I could, I could go to probably a 50 a bucks. Yeah. So they acquired it. They're flexing the pricing power. It's probably working in the numbers, but what gives, right? Like, uh, yeah, the know, stickiness, I, I mean, you know, the, this better than me, but I feel like the stickiness is not like super high, right? There's just, there seems to be like decent amount of competition in those mail services, mailing list services. So I just, I don't know. I think they have to be careful on that one. It's not like a QuickBooks where would be just a pain to change everything. I agree. I agree. So it's like, if you spun that off, I'd buy it. But the rest of the assets, I'm not in love with. For those reasons, I'm going to go to BlackRock. All right, last one, Simone. Uber at $90 billion in market cap or Ford at $60 billion in market cap? <laughs> I mean... I think uh, I think I would go Uber for that one. Um, I know the valuation. I don't have it up. I'm assuming Uber is way way higher in terms of valuation, but it kind of goes way back. Higher. 
Yeah, exactly. So it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier um, with NVIDIA, where I think Uber is the clear leader um, in ride sharing. And you're you're looking at even a Lyft, which, you know, does not have that many different verticals. Looks like they're going to die. Yeah, exactly. I've never used Lyft. I've only used Uber and they have Uber One, their subscription service, obviously with food delivery. They seem to have a pretty good, um, you know, idea of the business model. And clearly, if uh, autonomous vehicles do become a thing, that could be an added benefit to their their bottom line. Um, So I'm going to go Uber just because despite the valuation, they have such a leader leading position. And we've seen other services, even if you just think about food delivery, so many of them have tried and then, you know, fizzled out. And Uber is one of the ones that's still there. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. I mean, look at the mind share that it possesses and you're seeing their main competitor, Lyft, fall to the wayside. It might not exist in, in a year or two uh, with with the trajectory that they're on. So I think that that's the, it's the clear winner here. I think that the business definitely has its issues, but they're showing that they can live on without the VC-backed uh, cash burn until perpetuity, uh, kind of like an Airbnb has shown. I think Uber has done the same, so I, I'm with you on that one. And for the main reason that I don't own car companies, so I think that that's just, <laughs> just speaks yeah, for itself. I- like Ford could be a value play is just, again, lots of competition in the space, uh, capital heavy, uh, capital extensive, and Uber is just a clear leader. So I think just because of that, to me, I kind of forget about the valuation a little bit. I want one of those F, uh, uh, Ford F-150 electric lightning The lightning? Trucks. Yeah. <laughs> the lightning. They look sick. I saw one in person downtown Oakville. Two week, two or three weeks weeks ago, and uh, it's pretty sweet. Yeah, I, I would good. definitely yeah. get one of those. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's do it. That took way longer than expected, yeah. but uh, yeah, it's fun. All right, let's do it. You got ETF flows report. Yeah, exactly. So this one is a fun report. I think honestly, I'll, I'll probably try to look at it as much like on a monthly basis, just because I think it's really interesting to see where things are going. So National Bank uh, comes with comes out with a Canadian ETF flow report every month. And I was really, you know, I just came across it just, you know, randomly. And there's a couple of takeaways that are really interesting here. So 2.6 billion flowed into Canadian ETFs in May. Obviously, when you're talking about Canadian ETFs, these are Canadian listed ETF, but they could be investing in uh foreign equities like the u.s so keep that in so mind so that's by listing what's that it's by listing uh what do you mean by canadian listing? like it's it like canadian etf meaning that it's a canadian oh, yeah. listed listed ETF. Okay. yeah yeah okay yeah, you got with it you. exactly and uh, the first thing in terms of flows, um, it's actually quite interesting. So in terms of flows in May, it's been somewhat consistent with uh, a year before, pretty similar in terms of inflows uh, down a down from earlier in the year, but still, uh, you know, decent amount. So it was dominated by fixed income, which had inflows of $1.9 billion with money market funds leading the way with $1 billion in inflows. And we've talked about that on the podcast before, as there really seems to be a shift towards money market funds, because people can just get a higher yield on their cash for the most part because they're just not getting that from Canadian banks. XCC.TO, the iShares Emerging Market, saw the most inflows in the month at $377 million. Zeb, the BMO Equal Weight Bank Index, saw the second most at $319 million, so Canadians do like their banks. ZSP, BMO S&P 500, and ZEA, the developed market uh, ETF, saw the most outflows at $310 million each, and there were 27 new ETFs launched in Canada in May, the most since October 2022. So before I go on, so any comments on that uh, in terms of what we're seeing for May? That graph you have here, look how persistent net inflows were through 2022. Only June had net outflow. That was kind of like 
probably near the bottom there. Yeah, yeah. Really persistent uh, net outflows. Yeah, it's been pretty consistent. I mean, there was also January that had that, um, which I don't know if it's, I guess, yeah, it's not reoccurring because January of the previous year was different. But it's just interesting seeing the, the total inflows for sure. Yeah, people load up at the end of year. That's like pretty common for self-directed investors uh, to see that there in December. What's with the net outflows in January? I don't know. Yeah, because the year before in 2022, there was like significant significant inflows too. So uh, that's interesting. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah, especially I'd- off the backs of like really high flows in the end of 2022. Yeah. I think the markets were just a bit... Were they down in January? I think so, right? The markets were a bit down as a whole, so it could have been a sentiment thing. I'm checking now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, J- no, January, we we kind of ripped. We kind of ripped in January. Well, you know, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm not sure. Maybe people were like, oh... Look, the market goes up for once. I'm going to sell. They were so used to losing money on their their inflows in 2022, and they had an up month, and they're like, okay, I'm out, I'm out of this. No, exactly. And now what's really interesting is when you look at the year-to-date data. So since the beginning of the year, there has been $15.3 billion of net inflows into Canadian ETFs. Fixed income ETFs have had inflows of $9.2 billion, So they've dominated those inflows, which is not surprising. Higher interest rates, it's really encouraging people to go into that fixed income, especially when you're talking about money market funds, which are clearly one of the big parts here. U.S. equities ETFs, and this one is actually surprising. It had outflows of $1.6 billion since the beginning of the year. Are you surprised by that one? This is the U.S. equity. That's one that I'm highlighting here? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So US, like S&P, U.S. equity ETFs had outflows of $1.6 billion since the beginning of the year? Yeah, yeah. While, and, while there's been 15.3 net inflows in Canadian ETFs? Yeah. It's pretty crazy, huh? Wow. So it seems to me like people buying ETFs are actually going against the grain uh, because they're they're going into Canadian ETFs, which are doing way worse than U.S. equity ETFs. In the worst months of 2022, we had of performance, we had huge inflows. You see what I'm saying? Like yeah, it's yeah. it's not it's not what I would ex- it's literally the the opposite of what I would expect. Yeah, it's and not I, people piling in. It's it's people taking profit, I guess. Yeah, I and year to date, there's just three main segments that saw outflows. So the U.S. equity was one of them with the the most. The second one was um, commodities, which was just a little bit at 43 million, and then there was crypto asset ETF that was, had outflows of 302 million, which also it's not surprising looking at how the crypto market has been. Uh, but the U.S. one, I wanted your take because it's very surprising. When I saw that, I was quite surprised, yeah. Yeah, I wonder I wonder if they're like swapping it out for individual, they're like buying NVIDIA with it. I don't know. I mean, it could be. It could also just be that, you know, maybe people are just taking profits off the table because the U.S., I mean, if you've been investing in S&P 500 for at least a couple of years, I mean, you're still, you you know, any point this year, you were up quite a bit on your money. And it's possible, too, that people were just selling those to buy money market ETFs and lock in those gain and get 4 or 5% on, on interest, right? So um, that's probably part of it, if I had to think, uh, to say, yeah. Yeah, the top inflows in the those Canadian ones that you're about to talk about, you're seeing, yeah, high interest savings, total world, high interest savings, real assets, bond, uh, banks, index. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if you're looking at the full year again, Canadian equity ETFs had inflows of pretty much the same as the U.S. had outflows. Um, I don't think it's, you know, you can't really equate one for one here. Like I said, fixed income 
inflows have been so massive that I think they're probably taking a big chunk of the U.S. ones. But it's interesting to see that Canadian equity had inflows of 1.6 billion. International equities have had inflows of 4.7 billion as well. So maybe people are also shifting a little bit of those U.S. equities for international. And obviously, crypto assets ETF have not performed well in terms of inflows and outflows. And the top three ETF providers in Canada have two thirds of the market share in assets under management and the top five own just shy of 80% of the market share. What was a little confusing was RBC iShare. They put them together. So I think because you can get RBC iShares, but you can also get just iShare. So I'm assuming they're just you know, putting these two together because they put 28% here. And iShares, for those who are not aware, it's BlackRock. Uh, BMO is at 25%. Vanguard is at 13%. Horizon's at 7.3%. And CI um, Galaxy, I believe, Asset Management is at 5.4%. And 61% of the assets under management are in equities, while 31% are in fixed income. So I'll, I'll, it's kind of funny, almost like kind of that uh, 60-40 portfolio. The rest, I think, is just alternate assets and uh, potentially, I think, uh, cash as well. Um, any comments on that? The RBC iShares category, I don't get that. I'm so confused by Yeah, that. I was too. I'm assuming they're just putting them together. I think that's what would make the most sense because RBC, RBC has like RBC iShares ETF, but there's also iShares iShares ETF. That's my understanding, at least. I feel like they just put them together. Yeah, I think it's just a partnership between RBC and iShares. Uh, but, you know, I know that BlackRock has some um, Canadian listed yeah. ones that have nothing to do with RBC either. Maybe there's some partnership that I have no idea about. Um, BMO has a lot of market share here. Yeah, definitely. I, I knew they did well with their ETFs, but I, I didn't think they'd be higher than Vanguard, to be honest. Like, I, the first time I've ever really seen this data. So mm -hmm. I'm not surprised BlackRock's at the top, but I thought that Vanguard would be just shy behind them above BMO. But that equal weighted bank ETF prints money for them, bro. Like, yeah. unbelievable. And I'll give it to BMO. They have a pretty nice offering for, like, Canadians. And I think that's why they get a big chunk of that market share is they just, you know, they have more Canadian offerings, I think, well, they do than a Vanguard. Uh, Vanguard doesn't have that many. So I think for a lot of people, just they want to be able to buy something that's in Canadian dollars. And I think BMO has done a pretty good job of having some some diversification in there and i think it shows in their market share thanks for listening to the oh, podcast yeah folks. there's a couple uh, yeah before we go <laughs> you thought we were done but uh, psych i yeah. thought you were done oh you got two two sexy tables here. yeah okay, exactly here we well the second one is the one i was talking earlier about the uh, change in asset under management and just a little side note here for the u.s equities uh outflows it may sound like a lot but it's only two percent reduction in the total asset under management for those u.s equity etfs so it's still not that much but what's more interesting here is the top tw top etf inflows in may as of year to date obviously end of may so the biggest inflow was the c high high interest savings etf saw two billion dollars in inflows and that's an increase of 39 percent for their asset under management and then if you go down to number three horizons high interest savings etf horizons Horizons, my horizons dude. okay <laughs> anyways they had i you're so cute Timo. So they had 1.1 <laughs> billion in inflows, and that's an increase in 79% in their asset under management. So you're clearly seeing here that, you know, those money, uh, or these are like high interest savings ETF, but I, I would think they count as money market ETFs here. They are clearly leading the charge and there's a lot, there's other ones. I mean, I don't know if you're looking at it, any one that kind of come jump to, to mine as you're looking at these top uh, inflows? I'm noticing people flight to HISA, high interest yeah. savings. Yeah. Flight to HISA and people trying to buy the dip on banks. Those are yeah. the two things I noticed the most. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's uh, definitely, definitely true here. So it's an interesting report. Uh, I'll put a link for people interested in the show notes if they want to have a look at it, because I just kind of looked at the the things that I thought were the most interesting for the podcast. But um, really interesting report. If you enjoyed us, let us know and we can look at it. Maybe do, you know, a segment every month looking at what's happening on DTF front, because it also gives a good indication on you know, what people are just doing with their money in Canada, because you don't have to be Canadian to invest in these ETF. But let's be honest, uh, let, I'm sure most of the money going into them is Canadian money. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If not all of it, most of it. Dude, I still don't understand this like pretty significant inflow in Canadian equities and big outflow, almost exact outflow of U.S. equities. I can't wrap my head around yeah. that because the performance is the opposite of that. Yeah, and what, the last thing that's interesting here is if you look at that graphic, the market share of ETFs, so by geography, so Canada has 75 billion terms of equities related to ETF, 36% market share, and then the U.S. has 71 billion with 34 market share, including the inflows and outflows year to date. So, yeah, I think it still shows, as we discussed before, that kind of strong Canadian bias because Canada still owns a third of all asset under management for Canadian equities in terms of ETFs. Yeah, the, the Canadian home bias lives on for probably forever. And uh, you can see it's alive and well here in the data. Um, is that the episode? That's it. Yes. No more, no more no, psych? No, no, no more no, psych. Oh, yeah. So there's five more charts i need to show hold on (laughs) uh thanks for listening to the show everyone we are here mondays and thursdays happy canada day to all we appreciate you checking the show out and for those who may not know about what we do here at the podcast we are on page 234 of our fourth google document of that's notes of stuff that we want to prepare and show for the podcast, uh, research that we do, graphs that we put together to show the listeners of this podcast. The reason that we're on the fourth Google Doc is because they've gotten so big that it, like a thousand pages of all the photos and graphs and everything, they break. You can't open them after a certain point. So we have to keep starting new ones. So you can understand how much effort goes into the show so that it's well-researched and uh, entertaining for everyone here listening. And to support the show for all that hard work, you can go to jointci.com. That is our Patreon, where you see our monthly portfolio updates that are coming up you know, very soon here, being the end of the month. Or actually, no, this is it's going live July 3rd. So they're out. They're out right now. Our July portfolio updates are out uh, probably today. And uh, go ahead and check that out. We'd really appreciate that. That is at jointci.com. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.